Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Yankee Doodle, hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles um, Spirit of 76 Bryant <laughs> and Jerry Bicentennial Baby Roland. And I'm Josh, <laughs> like I said. Jerry wishes she was a bicentennial baby. <laughs> yes, she does. Both of y'all do. I know, man. I'd be five years younger. Yep. That's exactly where I am, squarely in the bicentennial baby year. Oh, that's right. Mm -hmm. I demand people refer to me as such when I'm out in public. (laughs) Dr. Bicentennial Baby. (laughs) Clark, yeah. Esquire. Yep. So, uh, how are you feeling? Pretty good? Good, man. Uh, We should probably say thank you to uh, all the people who came out for our West Coast jaunt. Yeah, that's a good idea, Chuck. Last week. So, big thanks to Seattle, Portland, and San Francisco for Stuff You Should Know shows, and then everyone who came out for Movie Crush and Into the World Live. Yes, thank you to everybody for all of those jams. We we had, like, really good crowds and good responses everywhere we went. How'd your thing go? I was uh, drunk in wine country. <laughs> it went really well. <laughs> I was tensing on stage in uh, Café du Nord. Uh, it actually, it went well when I went out. So it's like, it includes, like, um, a presentation, right, a visual, audio-visual thing. Ooh. And I could not get it to start working for a good... 15 seconds. Oh, my God. Which, which in my mind, was sure. a good 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, if you've all ever wanted to see someone die of fright on stage, you're about <laughs> oh, to. Oh, man. But it, I got it working, and it went well from there. But the thing that got me the most was they sat around for 30 more minutes after the show asking questions. So they were really into it, and it meant a lot to me. That's great. So thank you. And I, um, we, I haven't been to Brooklyn yet, but this will come out after the Brooklyn show, and I'm— just going to no actually it'll come out probably the day of the Brooklyn show I'll hold my thanks for then <laughs> we'll see how it goes Brooklyn great okay. congratulations how did yours go with Busy Phillips it was good it was fun she's super nice and uh, I only made a couple of really terrible jokes oh, and no. I will cut those out oh you gotta leave them in were they that bad no, no yeah they were pretty bad okay like dad jokes or like super offensive jokes no one which uh, evidently Emily said I said the wrong word which explains why it made no sense. Because oh, no. <laughs> uh, she even asked me yesterday, she was like, what was up with that one joke? Uh-huh. I was like, what? And I told her, and she was like, no, 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 that's not what you said. I was like, oh. Uh-huh. And I won't say it here, but it uh, it explained a lot. <laughs> oh, well, you got to tell me later, okay? <laughs> yeah, I'll totally tell you. Okay, cool. But uh, What about the other one? Was it a dad joke? Uh, no, just dumb. Okay. <laughs> Got to keep the image up. I know what you mean, man. Sure, but otherwise it'll be. Uh, although I don't, uh, I got the file today, and like the last twenty minutes of it aren't there. So I emailed them, and they're like, "Please tell me this is not all." So it may be a, a truncated version. I don't. I don't know. We'll see. The lost episode is what they call that. <laughs> I know. Um. Okay. Well. Good. Good. Congratulations. I'm glad. Aside from the, the file snafu and those two bad jokes. Right. That went well. <laughs> Otherwise, it was great. <laughs> uh, and we're going to go back out on the road sometime soon, we decided this year, right? Yeah, we're figuring it out. Hopefully another, like, nine-ish shows. Yeah, Maybe over the in, course of this year. Sure, places we've never been, places we have been. Who knows? We're going to mix it up. Yeah. Yeah, so keep an ear out for that. We've learned now we're just straight up going to put that in the beginnings of episodes. No messing around anymore. No messing around. Uh, okay. So all of that, of course, segues quite nicely into the story of Betsy Ross and the American flag's origins. Fraud. 
<laughs> I don't know that that's necessarily true. I don't think that's yeah. the official historical stance, but I think a better way to say it, Chuck, is questioned. And, hey, just a great story for history, so who cares if it's true? Yeah, lay off. Yeah. Putts. Call me a putt? Included. No, no. Okay. The person who's like, you know. Said fraud. I guess so. <laughs> Uh, so let's, well, I mean, let's get into this because, uh, the first thing that you will probably say if you're a, um, a Betsy Ross believer, Mm -hmm. she was a real person, by the way. Yeah. I think the first thing a lot of our listeners around the world will say was, is who is Betsy Ross? Sure. Well, she is credited, which is where I was going with the, uh, the sort of creation, design and sewing of the first flag. Thanks to a lot of things, but, Uh, certainly held up by a very famous painting called The Birth of Our Nation's Flag by Charles Weisberger. Mm -hmm. Very famous painting. Yeah, but it's one of those paintings, it's like super old-timey where there's a lot of written explanation painted into the painting. Mm -hmm. I just find that's just, there's nothing more old-timey than that. Yeah, you want to read that? Uh, well, sure. I wasn't expecting this. He says something along the <laughs> yeah, lines. Yeah, like he just won an award. <laughs> he, uh, well, I don't have anything prepared. Uh, he said, um, this is, uh, the national standard was made by Betsy Ross in 1776 at 239er Arch Street, Philadelphia, in the room represented in this picture. That's a lot of words, but it goes on still. <laughs> The committee, Robert Morris and Honorable George Ross, accompanied by General George Washington, called upon this celebrated woman and together with her suggestions, produced our beautiful emblem of liberty. So what are you guys doing this weekend? I was thinking about maybe going <laughs> roller skating. I know it hasn't been invented yet because it's only 1870-something, 1893. And he actually wrote out 1870-something, 1893. I know. And then he said, how about this new country? Pretty neat, huh? Right. And then it just kind of trails off from there. It just ends there. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a really wordy painting, frankly. It is very wordy. Uh, but that, that helps sort of cement the idea that Betsy Ross uh, was, in fact, the designer and creator and seamstress, I guess, for the first flag. Well, I'm going to take issue on behalf of some of our more um, historically astute listeners and say, she. I don't think she's credited with designing the flag. I think that's the one thing that everybody agrees on is that she is is not given credit for designing it. She's she's given credit for create like physically creating the first flag and then helping with some troubleshooting in the early design. Oh, you should go to an elementary school. <laughs> Why? Are they teaching otherwise? Sure. Is that right? Yeah. This is all created 100% by Betsy Ross. Fraud. It's not true. <laughs> what? Wait, but, which part's not true? The thing you said <laughs> or the thing I just said? Neither one. Okay. Uh, but we should talk about the real Betsy Ross because she was a real lady. Um, she, she's not a, an apparition or a visage. <laughs> uh, she was born in 1752 uh, on New Year's Day. She's a New Year's Day baby. Supposedly. Um, <laughs> I think that's documented. <laughs> yeah, probably. Okay. Uh, Elizabeth Griscom was her name, uh, born to Samuel and Rebecca in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And her great-grandpappy, Andrew Griscom, was a very notable Philadelphian. Uh, he was one of the first settlers and a carpenter and, like, built apparently a lot of Philadelphia's first buildings. 
Yeah, which is, I mean, that's that's pretty prominent for um, that that time because I mean, this is when the the whole place is being settled and it's being settled by Quakers. So, um, like Pennsylvania was a Quaker settlement, and that's how Elizabeth Griscom, aka Betsy Ross, which makes you think like she she robbed banks later in life and went on the lamb and changed her name. Not true. You'll see it's it, it'll all become apparent in a second. But she was raised as a uh, strict Quaker in Pennsylvania. Right, one of nine uh, children who grew to adulthood, but her parents had 17 kids, dude. That is so many kids. Man. Well, the Quakers take, like, keeping their faith going by multiplying seriously. I mean, that's, like, how a lot of religious groups are, um, they do it twofold. They reproduce a lot, and they also um, try to make sure that their their members who are born into their, their groups marry other members born into the group so that they will raise more uh, Quakers or what have you, whatever the religious group is. And actually, Betsy ran afoul of this later on, as we'll see. She was a bit of a rebel. Yeah, and also, I uh, imagine uh, Samuel as a Quaker was like, you know what's very fun? Procreation. (laughs) And his wife was like, it's not as fun for me. And he's (laughs) like, sure it is. That was such a great, like, (laughs) 18th century Quaker impression. Maybe the best I've ever heard, Chuck. This is the one thing we're allowed to do that's good. Well, they so the Quakers actually had a really, really liberal society. Like, there was a lot of equality. There was a lot of, um, it was a very, they were a very peaceful group and still are. They're pacifists through and through. Um, But they also were really strict morally. Like, if you were in a play, you could be fined 20 shillings and spend 10 10 days in jail for being in a play because it was just kind of frivolous and not very religious. But on the other hand, um, they all drank like fish. Um, you just weren't allowed to sell it to, like, the Native Americans because they equated that with corrupting them. I know some Quakers. Oh, yeah? Sure. Nice. Do you? Uh, I think we used to work with one, didn't we? Yes. Yes. (laughs) So I think we know the same Quakers. Probably, but now I'm wondering, first of all, I was about to shout out the name, then I was like, should I not? Then I was like, why wouldn't I? I just had a whole thing happen. Why would I? Yeah, exactly. And then you thought, fraud. Well, some people like to keep their stuff personal, so I'm just sure I'm not going to do that. Under the table, Quaker is what they, that is. <laughs> but they're they're also called the Society of Friends, which I think is the greatest name for any religious group of all time. Right, founded by six year olds. Society Society of Best Friends. <laughs> um, all right, so they're in Pennsylvania. The one thing that we do know is that her nickname was Betsy, mm-hmm. uh, and when she was about fifteen. She did learn to sew very well. She was an apprentice to an upholster named John Webster, and this is where she learned her craft. Right. And um, when you think of, like, you always hear of Betsy Ross being a seamstress, right? She was not a seamstress. She was, like you just said, an upholsterer, which involved a lot more than, say, dressmaking. As a matter of fact, I'm sure she did make clothes here or there. She knew how to. But mostly her stuff was on, like, sewing curtains and tablecloths and rugs and, like, other textiles um, rather than, like, actual clothing. So she was an upholsterer through and through. So is seamstress specifically clothing? That's the impression I have. Oh, interesting. I feel like such a fraud because I didn't look up the difference between the two, but that's that's my take on it. Well, I'm, I'm going to find out. <laughs> also, Chuck, umbrellas, Venetian blinds, and flags. 
That's something an upholsterer would have made back in the 18th century. Uh, apparently, a seamstress is any woman who sews. Okay. Anything. Well, well, then I wonder if upholsterer is a specialty of a seamstress then. Yeah, probably so. Okay. And what is a man who sews called? A seamster. Maybe. Never never thought about that. <laughs> and if he's in the union, he's a seamster teamster. <laughs> oh, Dad. <laughs> I know. It's gotten really bad. Maybe we'll have Jerry cut that out to keep my public image all right. Uh, so while she was doing this work, uh, she met a man named John Ross. Note the last name. And he was also an apprentice. And he was good at it. And he opened his own shop. And he was sort of, uh, I mean, he came, he came from a well-connected family. Yeah. Uh, and that his actual uh, uncle, George, who you might have uh, recognized from that painting, George Ross Jr. He was, he signed the Declaration of Independence, right? So that's legit. Oh yeah, he was a he was big time. He was, um, I think, a representative for um, for Pennsylvania in the legislature, either Pennsylvania or New Jersey, one of the two. He was nice. he was a big wig. If yeah. he's hanging out with George Washington and Betsy Ross's upholstery shop, then he was a big wig. <laughs> that's right, a big powdered wig, by the way. So, yeah. so this uh, her marriage to John Ross it didn't last very long. Um, although it was um, kind of marked by that like younger younger age radicalism, where she so John Ross was a, an Anglican, right? Yeah, he wasn't a Quaker, which was bad. Right. So they fell in love. He was an upholsterer as well, and um, John Ross. And Bets, Betsy, later Betsy Ross, when they met and fell in love, they had to elope to New Jersey, which everybody does. They elope to New Jersey um, because her parents were like, you cannot do that. And she said, well, I'm doing it. And they said, well, then you're out. And she went off and got married. And she was um, ex excommunicated is not the word. I think that's specifically Catholic. But she was kicked out of the Quakers. And her parent, her family disowned her. So she definitely loved the guy and went off and followed her heart and they made sweet upholstery together because he opened his own shop, actually. Yeah, it's really sad, though. I mean, it's great yeah. that they found each other, but it's anytime someone's, like, expelled and disowned by their family, it's just sort of sure. know, over religion. It's a sad thing. Yeah, it is. Or, yeah, for any reason, really, you know, like bringing shame or dishonor. It's like it's your family that's supposed to, they're supposed to be there for you no matter what. But it doesn't always work out that way. Which right. which was which Chuck means that family is what you make of it. <laughs> I thought family. What was it? Never trust family. Never trust family. <laughs> That's specifically blood family. Oh, okay. Um, so the Revolutionary War comes along, and in Philadelphia, um, people were, you know, kind of getting together, forming militias uh, in order to, you know, defend the city in case in case things went down. Right. And no one knows for sure what was going on with John and Betsy, uh, but we do know that he he died. We just don't know quite how. Yeah, they think maybe it was either an accident um, or a death from being in the militia, or there's there's supposedly a family rumor that that he may have suffered from mental illness and may have died as a result of something, some complication from that. Yeah, it's really sad though because that was obviously her true love enough to, to leave her family and religion. Mm -hmm. And she was widowed in 1776, just, uh, what, three years later mm -hmm. after they got married. Yep. 
So, so it was just three years after, right? Yeah, okay. So when she was a widow, there, that radicalism I mentioned earlier started to kick in. She um, went back to Quakerism if she ever left. I'm, I don't, I've never seen that she began attending like Anglican mass or anything, but she went back to the Quakers, but she joined a, a group, a specific group of Quakers called the Free Quakers or Fighting Quakers, who were like, yeah, we're Quakers, but we also are not crazy into pacifism. Cause like we'll we want scrap. To, well, yeah, we will. Shove me back. Shove me and see what happens. Um, and uh, that was what they wore on their on their shirts. Uh-huh. But, um, oh, man. But um, the reason that they were anti-pacifist is because they wanted to support independence. And the, yeah. there was going to be a fight, a struggle for independence. And you couldn't really side with one side and, and, not, and, and be a pacifist, basically. Yeah. Remember our pacifism episode? That was a good one. Yeah, that was a good one. Mm-hmm. So she uh, was once again unlucky in love. She got married again uh, to a man named uh, Joseph Ashburn. Uh, he died in prison in, in Britain. And then she finally got married a third time <clears throat> to a man named John Claypool. Uh, and she was married to him until he died. But this was like 20 years this time. You, you want to know how she and John Claypool met? Mm, at her second husband's funeral? Almost. Okay. He showed up. At the bar afterward? (laughs) John Claypool, even even more, even sooner than that, John Claypool was in prison with Joseph Ashburn over in Great Britain. And after he got out, he made his way over to America. And he's the one who brought Betsy Ross the news that her husband had died. And then I guess he was like, so, you you doing all right? Can I I be of any assistance for you? And rather than just uh, being there for her, he took away the for her, and he was just there. <laughs> I wonder if he was like, by the way, your husband's last words were totally, you should go marry my wife. That's the that's what they used to do back in the day. Uh, so she worked as an upholsterer until she died at the age of 84 in 1836. Uh, she had five uh, little girls, which is kind of great. Mm-hmm. And aside from that, that's kind of what we know about Betsy Ross um, as far as the facts go. Yeah, that's about where they they run out. And you might say, listener, uh, well, guys, you left out the most important one, the most important fact, the story of her sewing the American flag. Well, well, we're going to stick by what we just said and say that we just ran out of facts, which means it's a pretty good time for a message break, don't you think, Charles? Agreed. We'll be right back. Okay, so it's about here that we should kind of go over the Betsy Ross legend because what we just described is an 18th, early 19th century uh, American woman uh, who is a Quaker and an upholsterer and her love life and her uh, children, her offspring. Yes. That's it. That's all we've got. Um, So the flag story, for those of you who aren't familiar with this, is that when Betsy Ross was hanging around her upholstery shop one day in Philadelphia in, I believe, 1776, I think June 1776 is when they say it happened, uh, three men came in, that trio, 
including George Washington, George Ross, who was, um, remember, her first husband's uncle, mm-hmm. and then a man named Robert Morris, who was a wealthy man known as the financier of the revolution and considered one of the founders of the U.S. financial system. These three come in, very, very important men. And as legend goes, Betsy Ross recognized George Washington immediately. And they said, Ms. Ross, we uh, need your help. We, we have to, we're part of the Continental Congress's flag committee, and we've been tasked with coming up with a flag. Will you help us create this flag? And she basically said, let me see what you got. Yeah, she said, well, first of all, my husband passed away six months ago. So why are you bothering me, of all people? Right. And Uncle George was like, I know, but you're still family. You still got Ross on your name, and this will make for a good story later. <laughs> right. So she looks at the the design, and she said, this is not bad. She said, but you may want to change the proportions a bit. And her real and, – and this is kind of the one thing that I think most historians do agree on is that her one big change uh, design-wise was changing – the star from a six pointer to a five pointer. Right. If you if you agree that that Betsy Ross did have a hand in making the original flag, then yeah, you would probably say that's probably correct. And apparently, just because it was easier on her to cut. Yeah, I think though that they were saying like five pointed stars would be harder than a six pointed star. And she said no, no, and like whipped out her scissors and cut up some either cloth or paper and showed them how easy it was. And they're like, oh, that's beautiful. And George Washington was like, Ugh, are we still talking about this? Can we go? <laughs> He's like, why am I in a upholstery shop? I'm a revered why general. I, why am I in this story? <laughs> it doesn't even make sense that I would be here. Ooh, save that. Okay. So um, they uh, said, sure, that's fine. Easier to cut. You've proved it. Even though George Ross was over there trying to cut the six and prove her wrong. <laughs> the sun went down, came back up. He was missing a fingertip. <laughs> and so they said, that, that that's fine. Let's just do it. And uh, they draw out the new sketch. Uh, they incorporate her, her new star. And they said, get to it, kind lady. And she did. And it's a, it was a big flag. It wasn't like this was one they were going to fly, you know, out in public. So it wasn't like a little tester flag. Right. Uh, so it took a while. And what it would it take a few days maybe, and she finally says, "Here's what I've got," and they say, "This is great. Let's see how it looks on a on the mast of a ship." And they hoisted it up a ship, right? And they said, "All right, I think we're good to go here, everyone." Ta-da! <laughs> Basically, that's it. You know what's just occurred to me, Chuck, is how closely our history episodes resemble drunk history episodes. I know, except we're sober, <laughs> right? Ish. Um. But the, uh, so the, the flag is, it's been proven on this mast of the ship. It looks beautiful. And they go back to Betsy Ross and they say, Betsy, we're going to need a lot more of these. And the implication is commerce takes over and Betsy becomes wealthy and secures her, her, her place as one of the, the important figures of early American history. That's right. Uh, here's the thing, though, is... There is no proof or evidence that this happened. Uh, this all comes from a story that her grandson, uh, William Canby, told in 1870. So she's mm-hmm. been passed away for, uh, what, 30 years? More, almost close to 40, yeah, between 30 and 40. So she, but but it wasn't like she died 150 years before when her grandson wrote it down. Like he had known her in his lifetime. 
Yeah, and he said that his aunt had told him this 10 years before. Right. And said, listen, she told me this story. He, you know, recounted it probably in a much uh, nicer way than we just did. And uh, he told this in a speech at the Pennsylvania Historical Society. And this was, you know, 1870. 1876 is right around the corner. Mm-hmm. And everyone's getting all uh, all hot and bothered by the upcoming celebration. Right. And I think everyone just sort of, well, we'll get to the reasons why, but everyone definitely bought into this. Like, this is great. Let's run with it. Right. And so um, here's about where historians say, okay, all right. So William Canby um, produced this story in a speech to the Historical Society. It it took place 100 years after the thing happened, almost 40 years after Betsy Ross died. It's family lore. And apparently they got other people from the family to come testify like, yes, they've heard this story multiple times in in very similar iterations. It's like the story of how our ancestor— or grandmother Anne, or whatever she was to them, um, sewed the first American flag. And they say, okay, we don't think that the Ross and Claypool families are liars by any stretch. They're not. No, um, they, they just didn't make it up, you know. Right. That's that's kind of the, the, um, the, the uh, what's it called when you give somebody the benefit of the doubt? Just benefit, benefit of the, of the doubt. doubt. <laughs> That's the benefit of the doubt that historians tend to give the families, that they're, they're not just like liars who made this up. Um, but, but it is family lore, and so historians kind of approach it with a little bit of a grain of salt. The thing is, there's no other family in the United States who's saying, uh, actually, yeah. it's, it was our grandmother who made the, the first American flag, or my grandfather was at that meeting, and he was the one who came up with the stars. There's nothing like that. There's no other competing stories to this one, to this family story. The reason why historians take it with a grain of salt is because, again, like you said, there's just no documentary evidence whatsoever to show that it ever did take place. Yeah, and there's like there are a few flags here, uh, red flags that is, about why this may not be true. What I think is that it is a version of the truth, and then history tells wraps a good story around it. Right. Um, there was no record of a flag committee being formed. Um, the fact that George Washington was there is just doubtful in and of itself as a mm-hmm. huge superstar uh, army general and American hero <clears throat> that he would be like, we were kind of kidding around when he's like, why am I here? But why would he have been there? Like well, in not, person. Not only that, this is, um, this was recounted by William Canby as a, uh, a congressional committee for the flag. And there's two problems with that. One, George Washington wasn't a member of Congress. Right. So again, why would they send him along with this committee? And then secondly, um, Congress never in any way, shape, or form on paper at least took up a flag, the the details of the flag, until 1777, a full year after this story supposedly took place. That's right. Uh, There are a few things working in her favor here. Um, It is verified that she was paid a pretty good sum of money um, that same year by the Pennsylvania State Navy Board. Okay, I saw that she did make flags for the Pennsylvania Navy. Well, this is where it gets all murky uh, because there's another man, which we'll get into. Uh, Let's put a pin in that, though. Oh, okay. Of of that guy for now. Okay, all right, because we were getting pretty fast and furious eight there. (laughs) Uh, And there's also a painting supposedly dating to 1851, 
a different painting that shows her sewing an American flag. Um, but I don't think they have, like, officially authenticated that it's from 1851. 1851? Yeah. Oh, okay. But here's what I don't understand. If there was a painting in 1851, I mean, supposedly mm-hmm. none of this happened till 18, what, 70? The Camby story? Yeah, like yeah. when the big meeting took place. Well, I mean, I, that's when that's when William Camby told that family story. But the fact that there's a painting that predates his speech by 19 years showing the same thing. Does, oh, sure. That okay. lends support to his story for sure. All right. But it's still, that's an 1851 painting depicting something that happened 75 years prior. Right. If uh, Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. My math was, I, I forgot 100 years. Had, you forgot to carry the one? <laughs> I did. <laughs> uh, but again, that, that painting is not, I don't think, uh, fully authenticated. So who knows if that's true or not. One of those dirty, lying Ross Claypool <laughs> family members did it in like 2012. I thought you said Les Claypool for a minute and I was about to run out of the room. You don't like Les Claypool, huh? Um, I'm not a Primus guy. Hmm. Um. So I wouldn't call myself a Primus guy either, but I, I, I like some of their songs. Yeah? Yeah. Um, so, Chuck, you want to take another uh, message break and then come back and get to it, get to the, the truth about the flag? Sure. Right, Charles. So you said that there was another guy who kind of muddles the issue a little bit. And he does, but not fully. Because um, if little school kids are being taught that Betsy Ross did design the flag, that is an issue because this guy named Francis Hopkinson is given credit more than anybody else for having a hand in designing the first American flag, if not being the designer of the American flag. This, this sketch that this trio of the Congressional Committee brought in, allegedly. Yeah, so the story, the story I heard around the campfire mm-hmm. <laughs> of old Hopkinson was that he, he kind of was, in fact, the designer. He designed quite a few things uh, back then for the United States. Right. And the first thing that he did was say, I want payment of a quarter cask of wine but then he said, actually, I want 2,700 pounds, which would be like half a million pounds today. Wow. Um, apparently, it bureaucracy took over, and they batted it back and forth, and then we're like, well, no, we're paying you as an – it's sort of that, like, working for a corporation and owning your own IP. And they were like, no, we're paying you anyway. Mm-hmm. This is ours. And when you look at what he filed for – and this is where the naval thing comes in. It was for the naval flag of the United States is what he requested payment for. Right. Supposedly the quarter cask of public wine was for the American flag and the the big old like 2,700-pound bill was for the naval flag. And that's the only one that Congress responded to. They just totally ignored the first one, I guess. Yeah, but this is where I just get a little confused. Like it was important uh, – and that's the kind of one of the keys here, too, is that they needed a flag. It wasn't just like, I mean, there were practical reasons. It's not like we just want to fly a flag. Like in battle, flags are very 
important, or they mm-hmm. were back then. Right. Because if you were a small Navy and you didn't have a flag that everyone knew as, you know, the the United States would be basically, don't bomb me. Right, exactly. Don't shoot. I'm I'm friendly with you. So Which they was, needed a naval flag. Right. So um, they had, they there were a bunch of flags that, that you could find in revolutionary America at the time. There were some very famous ones that you would recognize today. Um, the Washington Squadron. That's a good it, one. It is. It's a white flag with a green pine tree. Yeah, and, and it's like, it an appeal tree? to heaven, too. Right, which is the, the point of that is to say that um, when you revolt, you're, you're going above the king's head because the king was the, had the divine right. Like they, they ruled by, you know, on behalf of heaven. So by revolting against the king, you were going to heaven, the king's boss, and saying, hey, we want to get rid of this guy. Yeah. But the pine tree, there was actually a revolt that was that took place a few years before the Boston Tea Party. Even it was the first revolt in the in the colonies against the king, the first actual revolt, and it was because the king said, "I own this pine tree. I own that pine tree. I own this pine tree," um, and they were f- to make ships masts out of. They were very very valuable, but the king was keeping all the good ones. And so these mill owners just started cutting up the king's ones as well. And the, the sheriff, and I can't remember where it was, but came to arrest a, a mill owner. And some other mill owners came around and they beat the sheriff up and chased him off. And that was the first actual act of rebellion in the colonies. And that's why the pine tree became a symbol of rebellion and revolution. Oh. Yeah, I didn't know that until today. It's a symbol of a pain in my butt. <laughs> if you're king, the king, <laughs> the king of England, but it's a pretty flag. Uh, it's all right. Okay, are you a Gadsden flag person? No. Okay. Not that thing. That's too much controversy. That's, That's the very famous uh, don't tread on me flag. Right. The rattlesnake coiled up saying, don't mess with Texas. No, not Texas. <laughs> <laughs> don't tread on me is what it says. Uh, yeah, and then there's, of course, the Sons of Liberty flag, uh, nine vertical stripes, red and white. Mm-hmm. Um, it's fine. And this, you know, and this one took different, um, different, the, the one we stuck with, with the 13 stripes and 13 stars, mm-hmm. uh, over the blue field in the upper left corner. Um, there were different designs for that, including one that I think I might've liked better. Um, well, one time they had 13, uh, stars in a, forming a square, but, uh, then they had one where they were in an arch over 76, which I think would look kind of cool. That's a boss flag. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. For a little while, they had the American flag, the um, red and white stripes, 13 red and white stripes um, as a field on the flag. And then the Canton, which is um, a square in the upper left corner, which can be up to a quarter of the size of the flag, and it's still considered a Canton, um, was the Union Jack, the the British flag. Yeah, it looks real weird, and um, they they apparently were running into trouble flying that, too, because it was a little confusing, so they abandoned that, and as legend has it, that flag is what 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 showed that they really needed an official yeah. United States flag, <laughs> and so that supposedly is what led to that Betsy Ross flag, which was 13 stars in a circle on a uh, canton, a blue canton, with the 13 alternating red and white stripes. Yeah, I would say that at the very least— the Union, the Grand Union flag, as it was known, with the uh, Union Jack in the corner, was highly confusing in battle. Right. So Congress, it becomes clear to them that they that yes, they need a flag. We need a national flag. But the the big 
distinction between what actually happened and this this story of Betsy Ross is that they didn't say anything about the flag until June 14th, 1777, when they passed a flag resolution. And they just basically said, yeah, these are, these are some things we want on the flag, and that's it. And that's the first time there's any trail, any paper trail of the United States actually thinking and talking about and discussing a flag. And we have every other change from then uh, up to, I think, 1959 or 1960, um, from 1777 on to the mid-20th century. We know every change that was made because they documented it. But this alleged first Betsy Ross flag took place outside of that documented history. Well, they may not have known at the time, you know, that this was something important. Yeah, I guess so. Um, so, you know, why does this happen? Well, there's a lot of reasons. Um, one reason was even way back in the 1870s, there was a notion that uh, women were doing some great things and being overlooked. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to inspire uh, young women and girls across the country to do great things as well. So what better way to do so than to um, sort of gussy up this Betsy Ross story? Right. Um, there was also like a, a desire for, you kind of referenced it earlier about um, the centennial coming up in 1876. There was like a real hunger in the United States, which was a relatively young country, um, to, to, to have its own mythology. Yeah. And so that's what some of these stories that were being um, kind of generated and rehashed or put down on paper for maybe the first time, that, that that's what they provided was this this shared national history that that the United States citizens were kind of like rallying behind. Yeah. And that's that's a good example of why that would have taken off and become cemented. Yeah, the other thing that kind of cracks me up is the fact that George Washington was in the story himself. Right. Because apparently he was just such a legend at the time uh, and just, you know, emblematic of, of what this country was and would be is that he turned up in a lot of stories that he was he was never really at. Right. Because, I mean, this is at a time where people would just tell a story and be like, and guess who else was there? Maybe if they're losing the crowd. Right. <laughs> General George Washington himself. <laughs> the crowd just gasps and sits up. Yeah. That's great if they're losing the crowd. Uh, and then, of course, the easiest explanation is that, you know, it's a simple story and it's easy to tell and uh, it's pretty streamlined has a nice beginning, middle, and end, and it's much better than some weird convoluted uh, retelling that no one would remember anyway. Right. So here's where Francis Hopkinson comes in the story. Uh, it's going to yeah. get a little <laughs> muddy here, kid, but um, just he try asked it for wine, working. but then money, and then it was a naval flag. <laughs> right. Uh, let's see. I got a couple things about the flag. So, you know, there's a, the study of flags, how they're made, what they're what they symbolize is called velixology. I thought it was flaggery. No. Um, that's where you're starting to lose uh, steam. Oh, okay. Velixology, there's a great uh, 99% Invisible episode on flags. Oh, yeah, that's right. I knew I heard that word. That's so, a good one. Yeah, it is. Um, so the United States flag, there's 13 horizontal stripes, seven red, six white, in case you ever want to win at trivia. The stripes are the 13 colonies, obviously, and the stars are the 50 states of the Union. Um, the red symbolizes hardiness and valor, not blood. White symbolizes purity and innocence. Blue represents vigilance, perseverance, and justice. Hmm. 
And if you ever want to see a heck of a flag, go to the Smithsonian Museum of American History, and you can see the Star-Spangled Banner, the flag that was flying over Fort McHenry in 1814 when Francis Scott Key looked up in the dawn's light and saw that it was still flying over there despite just a massive assault by the British and was inspired to write the Star-Spangled Banner, which became the national anthem in 1933, I believe. Yep, 1931, of course, is what I meant. Amazing. So that's the flag. And Betsy Ross, go forth and tell the truth. Uh, And if you want to know more about Betsy Ross, you can read this article, a fine one by Ed Grabanowski, actually, on HowStuffWorks.com. Since I said that, it's time for listener mail. I'm going to call this really cool email from an Atari guy. Uh, This is thrilling. Mm-hmm. I thought so, too. Uh, hey, guys, love the show. I worked at Atari in the late 70s. I ran the warehouse. In 1976, Warner Brothers purchased Atari from its founder, Nolan uh, Bushnell. Uh, Nolan stayed on for a couple of years uh, after that before departing in 78. Uh, cartridges created to meet movie releases is probably one of the reasons he left. Uh, when I first heard that the E.T. cartridges had been buried, I laughed because I oversaw the burying of leftover Superman cartridges. That's crazy. For that first movie in 78 uh, at the Sunnyvale, California landfill, which is right across the street from the building I ran. Uh, Something you would not be able to do today because of environmental restrictions. Um, Like the E.T. cartridge, Superman would fly around, pick up Lois Lane, and rescue her from some villains. The only problem, Superman kept dropping her, (laughs) and she would (laughs) plummet to the ground. That's a bug. It's so funny. It's just so similar to Mm E.T. The cartridge was rushed into production was a huge flop. I uh, thought you might find the Warner Brothers tie interesting. Sure. Uh, that is from Gordon C. Ulig. Nice. Thanks a lot, Gordon. That was a good one. I, th- I see he runs his own IT business now, too. Yeah, man. That's that's what happens. Um, so uh, if you want to get in touch with us like Gordon did with a great story that kind of rounds out something we were talking about, we love those things. You can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can join us on Facebook.com at slash Stuff You Should Know. You can hang out with us on Instagram. I've got my own site, The Josh Clark Way. And then as always, you can send us a nice email to stuffpodcasts at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 